with Schaefer and Erica Windish, and we're going to talk about computers and feelings. So, um, yeah, let's do it. Computers and feelings and random. <laughs> Erica, how are you? Good, good. I, it, it's, I'm really happy to be with both of you today. It's, um, I was telling Jess earlier that, um, you know, I, I worked with both of you uh, for a while. So um, I was really excited to see you two doing this podcast. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself really quick for the listeners that might not be familiar with your work? Sure. Um, so I'm currently the CTO and founder of IOPipe, uh, where we're providing observability into serverless workloads. Um, however, um, my history is, is much longer than that. Um, I was uh, previously um, at Docker, where I was a maintainer and ran security. Um, and I was at cloud scaling before then with Andrew. Um, and I was one of the, I was the OpenStack maintainer uh, or core contributor. And I also had my first startup, which was uh, where I was building my own cloud, um, almost entirely on my own. <laughs> so maybe just for uh, the fun, because I haven't heard this whole story. What made you decide to build a cloud, like back in the day? Like, where, where, where did you come? What kind of set of skills? And, you know, what, what, what combination of arrogance and ignorance brought you to the moment where you're like, I'm going to build a cloud? That is a perfect explanation of how that happened. <laughs> arrogance and ignorance. Um, so, um, my first job in tech, um, I, I, gra I didn't graduate from school. I, I, I dropped out of school um, to join a small web hosting company up in Scranton, PA, um, where um, I interviewed with uh, Nick Costin of cPanel um, and Brad Spengler of GR Security. Um, and I was there for maybe a year and a half or so um, before I left. Um, and we were doing like this shared web hosting, which is, you know, like they would stand up all these like, you know, machines that were like pets, right? These, these server um, and just gave users like, you know, created like regular Linux users on those machines. And then they had a shared web hosting process for all of those users, right? And, you know, CGI scripts and everything would execute as the web hosting user. So then users would set their permissions to like 777 so they could write the files. And it was a disaster. So I said, okay, there has to be a better way of doing this. What if every user had their own web server and we ran a reverse proxy for all the users? So I left and I started my own company <laughs> where we did that. And then we're able to support users running at the, I mean, this is 2002. So users are running like Mod Pearl and, um, uh, Apache Tomcat, um, and, you know, even like PHP scripts and so forth, but then it could run as their end user and there was a better security model as well as, you know, I also just, you know, did this thing where when you uploaded your content to the server, it would, you know, copy it out to multiple servers and we ran a, you know, a, a load balancer between them. Uh, but the service wasn't popular because users couldn't figure out the fact that like, oh wait, my MySQL database isn't on my same host. You know, like they didn't understand this idea of like, oh, I can build a static page, you know, like static HTML stuff and then like put everything in a database. Like that was just, I mean, this is 2002. And, you know, so trying to, build, you know, get people to build applications for that was just hard. It was a different time. It was a different time. Um, so basically the, re the way I ended up building, turning that into a cloud 
was that we we had to support all these different languages. Like, you know, suddenly Ruby was a thing. And then all the Ruby developers were trying to figure out how they wanted to build and ship applications. And they started writing their own web servers because I don't know why. They just did. <laughs> and, you know, then like, you know, every week, you know, a Ruby developer want a different web server and they wanted a different, um, you know, some, and the great thing was we had one of the few platforms that actually allowed users to do that, you know, in a semi-containerized fashion, you know, keeping in mind this was, you know, 2003, 2004, you know, 2005, whatever. Um, so, but it was always constantly a new thing. And it was one thing that users could do it manually. It was another thing for us to try and offer, you know, a fully supported service where they can just bring their application and not have to do the operations. So, Everyone wants a platform. Right, exactly. Um, they just so, want their way. Yes. So I met somewhere in the middle, which was, okay, I'll give you a platform where you can bring your own you know, machine images and run virtual machines. So we launched that in 2006. Um, and it, it was interesting because, you know, I, I basically set up a giant you know, like cluster. And I was like, okay, we're going to do like the Walmart of, you know, hosting and say like, you know, we're just going to, you know, scale things horizontally, you know, cheap, you know, like cheap and throwaway. And like, you know, it went really deeply down, like to the kind of Google SRE kind of route, you know, before anybody, including I knew what that was. Um, and one of the goals there was to make things cheaper. Um, one of our first customers actually was WordPress, um, which really enabled us to help do that project. So, at a time we were running like wordpress.com for a very short period. Um, and yeah, so I mean, that, that's kind of how it gets started. Um, and keep in mind, this is 2006, 2007. So this is just as EC2 as getting started. Um, and the reason, I, I guess the way it became like, a you know, maybe a cloud or a true cloud in the sense of like automation and APIs and everything, because this is the point where I said, okay, I have MVP, people want virtual machines, they want this web hosting, they want this platform. I need to automate this. And really the main reason I automated it was because I didn't want to hire people. Um, <laughs> I was like, I want to provide the best support possible and I'd rather hire people and support who can help the customers um, and then have like set up and, you know, creation of like virtual machines and all of that, you know, everything to be self-service so that users don't have to engage support if they don't need, you know, if, if they can avoid it. And so that we don't need to manually configure and set up these things for users because that defeats the whole purpose of it being a platform. If they have, you know, if their API is an email address. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's how I got started. Um, but at some point, um, I think the, uh, the 2008 bubble, I mean, first of all, we never, I never raised money. This was completely bootstrapped um, and it was profitable, not, highly profitable, but it was profitable, um, self-sustaining. And, um, but at some point it wasn't the two, 2008, like recession didn't hit us immediately, but it took about two years after that. Um, when it was like, yeah, this is like, we, we'd have to raise money or shut this down. And at that point I would like, we, we had, um, we, we had an outage over like Thanksgiving, like, 
it happened during Thanksgiving dinner and I had to drive to the data center in the middle of the night, like, and it stayed there in the data center until Monday, like <laughs> of that Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I think that was, I think that was the weekend I called Randy. <laughs> who was, uh, the and then we shipped you off to Korea. So you had like, I don't know which was worse, but. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and, and, and just, and just the, um, for the listeners, that was Randy Bias of Cloud Scaling, um, you know, where, where I worked with uh, Andrew. <laughs> but yeah, I, and I was in Korea for six months, more or less. Yeah, we, we definitely had some adventures. <laughs> Le learning lots of things about technology and culture the hard way. Yeah, I, I felt like I did pretty well in that environment. Um, but not everybody did. Uh, it was, that, was, that was definitely a tough time. And also, um, I had my first child in the middle of that whole thing. Wow. Yeah, I recall. <laughs> so so without, without pulling all the scabs and scars off me, like, then, then somehow you got into uh, Docker? Like, what was the transition from? Like, you saw the transition from VMs to containers, and then now you're more focused on serverless. So maybe give us a little bit of that story, but also how and why you kind of keep, keep jumping onto the, to the new things. Yeah. So, um, something that was interesting was that as part of my whole, <clears throat> like with my own cloud, uh, I had built in a capability of basically an ability to upload um, JavaScript and Ruby scripts to the server to, to, inter to interact with our API so that rather than say doing like a cloud formation, you basically just had a full, you know, Turing complete, um, you know, like Ruby or JavaScript environments. Like in, we, uh, Node didn't exist and V8 didn't exist at the time. So uh, it was based on SpiderMonkey, which is the uh, backend for um, Firefox. And um, what, so it would run those scripts and it did this basically the serverless environment for interacting with the API as opposed to say um, what CloudFormation did. And um, that had definitely gotten me thinking into the idea of serverless as well as um, I had actually met Solomon for the first time in 2009 um, when he first built an MVP of what became .cloud. And he actually thought initially of releasing it as a product, um, you know, similar to Docker. But the problem was like, you know, it had some interesting requirements. Like, I mean, there were kernel modules you had to, like, you actually had to recompile your kernel to include the OpenVZ primitives. Um, you needed to, because um, none of that was in the kernel at the time. There, were not, there was no containerization in the kernel. So everything was, like, compiled. You had to compile your own kernels for it. Uh, and you had to install MongoDB on every machine. And I was like, this is really cool, and I want this. But also... I don't know, this is, this is so high touch, I don't know that you're going to get like a widespread adoption of this currently. So, um, the mean time to dopamine is too high. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, I got to see, you know, the, the, the dot cloud slash Docker, you know, MVP at that time, gave Solomon this feedback. Um, but I, you know, I always stayed interested in the idea and I knew something was coming from him. Um, but, you know, I kind of had to wait for .cloud to kind of do its 
thing that it did. Um, and um, so honestly, it was at cloud scaling. Uh, Solomon came and gave us an early preview of Docker um, before PyCon, and um, which is where it was like publicly announced. And you know, um, honestly, I started you know making my considerations for making that jump. Um, you know, so I vested my you know I stayed with cloud scaling a little longer. You know, vested my shares, which was probably the wrong move. <laughs> Um, and, you know, but, you know, so then it was like eight months later or so, I, I ended up joining Docker. And, and, and I think it was like employee 15 or 16 there. And did you, I, I don't really know that much about Jeff's time there and your time and how, or if you worked together at all. So maybe. Yeah, no, we did. It was awesome. Um, but like, Eric was definitely there before I was. I think I was like 31 or something employee number. But yeah, like we, we worked together on the security stuff of Docker and like all that security release stuff came from her. So it's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah, I wrote up all of the like run books and like policies and procedures and everything. Um, but, you know, Jess, you and I worked a lot um, on doing the security releases um, and the release management and like also just general um, improvements. So like a lot of the app armor stuff we worked on together. Um, you oh, did yeah. some bits, I did some bits. Um, a lot of bits got reverted. <laughs> app armor was like Jenga. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> and like, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody but us can really appreciate like how true that is. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are some other people, but like it, it was, it was really rough. Um, it, it's it's still I'm still getting like updates on those GitHub issues today because like things I worked on and got reverted like nobody went back and said okay like let's go fix up this PR and resubmit it and, like no those those bugs are still there <laughs> yeah yeah no like the the problems with app armor versions just in general like having to do that in the template I mean the whole thing is insane I just have horror scars. Yeah. So for our listeners, um, the one of the one of the many problems with App Armor is that basically an App Armor definition is neither forward nor backwards compatible. It is only like strictly compatible with the version for which you write it for. <laughs> it's so bad. Like it's that just that idealism is not great. Like, I mean, it it, it makes it very difficult to ship a book product like Docker where you're trying to ship a single app armor policy that works on all versions of app armor. <laughs> it's just not designed for it. So, you know, we, we ship, we, we, we build something, we test it, we ship it, you know, and then suddenly we have users like complaining that we broke the production systems. And it's like, we, we tried like every permutation that we could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just, that one fell into the edge case that was not supported currently. The common combinatoric explosion of, of random configurations. Yeah, well, and also um, there was just, I guess there's just so many different versions of Linux and, you know, trying to support Red Hat and Ubuntu. And the interesting thing too was like SE Linux and AppArmor had very different protections and one would protect you from certain attacks and one would protect you from other attacks. And I don't know, it was, it was just such a mess. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not doing that anymore. 
I mean, in some ways, it's still not fixed, right? It's still not done. So. Oh, no, it's still not fixed. No. <laughs> yeah, it's but, very finagle -y. So that, that ran its course, and then at some point, you got into what you're doing now. So, yeah. Um, so what's, what's exciting you about what you're doing now? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, what I've been doing my whole career has been trying to get you know, platforms to users where they can deploy and run their code, right? Like that's what I've been working on my whole career. And, you know, I feel that serverless really delivers on that, you know, from like a really raw primitive, which is allow them, you know, to provide their code and run it. Um, and, you know, have all of the platform semantics just there and handled for you. Um, you know, with IOPipe, what we're doing is observability in those platforms, which is really just another you know, angle of, you know, I've done operations for all these years and found it really hard to operate apps. And it really made sense for us to focus on these next generation applications and, you know, this, you know, on serverless where I do believe like this is where the ball is moving. Um, but then also being able to build an interesting, you know, uh, you know, ops tool and developer tool for that. Um, cause that's the other thing I've done, right? It's just like, I'm tr I've always been trying to basically help users, sh you know, ship to platforms and like do systems actually, and development actually, right. automation for it. Um, so that's what we are, right? We're a dev and ops tool, um, just like Docker and OpenStack and my own cloud was. So what do you, what do you give, uh, the users that you're, so you, so you have customers, they have their serverless apps. What do you what do you show them or what do you help them do? What is what is IL Pipe actually? Um, so what you can do is uh, we have a bunch of things honestly. So um, what we do is we wrap around your function. So for instance, a Python it would be a decorator. Um, you can do um, every language has their own method of integrating, but generally we wrap around your code. Um, and when your when your function completes we generate a blob um, that we send out to our API, we ingest it, um, and then we provide you like we have structured logs, um, tracing information, um, you know, general, you know, performance things like CPU memory, whatever. Um, but really the structured logs um, are really interesting. Um, what we have are labels. So you can say that this particular request, right? Because you know, on Lambda, let's say you build an API every API request becomes a separate invocation. So every invocation, you know, is represented in IO pipe um, and is actually in our database as a separate document. Um, and each of those documents basically has things like labels. So you can say that um, this HTTP request um, was for this method or this HTTP request um, triggered this other action that occur or whatever. So you can use those labels, you know, for sorting, filtering, uh, searching, um, as well as the custom metrics. So you can do like, which is basically structured logging. And so you can do things with IO pipe, like, uh, so we just had this, um, so Red Nose Day in the UK uh, just did this giant fundraiser and they raised like $82 million. And um, they used IO pipe as, um, to run that, you know, as part of the application for observability. And so if, let's say somebody was trying to submit a donation and it, fail because of the database, right? Um, we could actually, you know, they could dig in and understand, well, you know, this person had a, you know, a failure um, for 
like it gives them that whole visibility into who, what, how, why, you know, everywhere from the user making the request to the API to the backend service and then tying the whole story together. So your customer basically gives you the code and you put it into Lambda. No, no, they run the code um, on Lambda the, themselves. Um, we they just have a hook inside of the code. Interesting. And then what's like the craziest? So you gave us like a story of someone solving a problem. Is there like right. some other crazy stories you could tell or, or like something that even surprised you? Like there's a <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that surprised me recently was just like looking at a user who like for every invocation had like a hundred labels and like 3000, you know, traces. And it was one of the, it was just, it, it, it wasn't so much an unexpected pattern. It was just really accessibly using like everything that we offered. Like, you know, like you almost wondered like if they intentionally tried to like, you know, uses like make really long logs and like lots of traces and lots of HTTP calls. It was really actually fantastic to look at and it was great great for um, our designing UX you know, folks to look at and understand how users are using the product. Um, on my side, um, there are certain things that I, that I kind of would like to see people doing and I don't see them doing uh, currently. Um, things like, you know, like there's no reason you couldn't use our structured logs as like some really asinine database. <laughs> like, you know, like querying previous invocations that ran out of you know, um, out of your logs and then like using that as a database. Um, you really, sh you shouldn't do that and nobody's doing it. Um, I, I would kind of like to see somebody try that. <laughs> you know, just. I mean, lo logs are basically databases or databases are basically logs if you, uh, and that's, that's sort of what the whole Kafka story is about, so. Yeah. What's, uh, what's next or what, what gets you, uh, we, we kind of had a, a pre pre podcast bit of ranting. And, and so it's like, what, what are the things that are on fire or that get you like, what keeps you up or what, what, what do you, would you like to see people working on that they're not working on? At my company? No, just in or, the, or, or otherwise you mean like, yeah, across the industry, industry. Like. so I can tell you, I don't want people in the industry working on Okay. Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't see him stopping anytime soon. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's jump in this rabbit hole together. <laughs> why don't Why don't you want people working on Kubernetes? I mean, it isn't it pointless. Like we just did this like three, four, ten times. Like I, I just like we're, we're just reinventing the wheel over and over again. I'm just so tired of it. I mean, now, now you're asking like fundamental meaning of life questions, what is <laughs> or not. But I, I feel like there's some meaningful things moving forward with, with the Kubernetes ecosystem in the sense that it sort of unifies the, the story where people can start to move past that, you know, solving the problem over and over. I mean, I, I think Kubernetes is like, if you're going to buy into containers, then Kubernetes is, is, you know, a good, uh, is really the only platform that really makes that work today. Um, I'm just not bought into containers anymore. I, I don't, I just don't use them. Like, 
I stopped using containers, like with very rare exceptions. But you realize there's a lot of people that have these data centers that aren't going away anytime soon. And like they gotta do something. Those are, uh, those are literally other people's problems, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> They, they they need something. They, they, I think it's a meaningful step forward in the sense that they they have to. I, I for one believe that at some point there will not be internal combustion engines that are polluting our atmosphere. But I also will probably continue to drive uh, my car that has an internal combustion engine and put gas in it for a while. Like I would love to not like for that to not be true, but it's practically true for the foreseeable future. So I think that's no, what a lot of this tech is where like yeah. people people would love to do everything on on you know serverless environment, but it's not it's not realistic for an existing business with whatever inertia and technical investment. Well, I mean absolutely. Um it's it's just kind of funny to watch from the outside. Like because you know I'm I'm very much like you know you're so it's, over. It's over. I'm like, it's <laughs> over. Like, you know, it. I, I live, you know, you know me, Andrew. I live in the future. Like, <laughs> and, you know, I, I just like look back at, the, it's like looking back at the past, like, and saying, look, five years ago, oh, why did we do that five years ago? Except I look at now and I say, why are they doing that now? <laughs> no, I, I get it. I, I, uh, I share some of your sentiments, but it's also, the I know, we have to be pragmatic. <laughs> the future's not evenly distributed. No, it's not. As the, as the saying goes. <sighs> have you played with any serverless, Jess? I have, actually. And I, th I think it's cool. Like, I, I, I do see that as, like, a future that people will use, especially, like, those people that are just now deploying to, like, Heroku. Like, serverless seems to be that. Right. So here, here's a little thing that may or may not be an uh, interesting rabbit hole. Did, did anyone see this announcement from Fastly? The, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's like Loose Set or something. It's like this WebAssembly Edge open source project they released uh, a few days ago. Oh, so like all the CDN seem to be doing that because Cloudflare has workers, and I think they're going to use like WebAssembly for those in the future, it seemed like, but right now to be eight. So that's interesting. Maybe all the CDNs are doing this like Edge JavaScript. Yeah. Um, and, and Lambda does it as well. Um, I don't know if Google or Microsoft have any at edge compute solutions yet, but um, there's at least those three. Fastly, Cloudflare Workers, and Lambda at Edge. I, I just bring it up because like the, there's a future, and then there's another future, and then there's another future, right? And this isn't going to stop. Yeah. And, and when people at least in, in principle, have these aspirations to do these IoT projects, you're going to have to solve this edge computing. These are two projects I saw recently they are interesting. One is um, Simon Crosby's swim.io thing is kind of interesting. And then this stuff that Fastly just put out there is kind of interesting. They both have this like edge, like re reframing like some of the, the focus so you do things on the edge with the whatever different it's like it changes the paradigm basically for a programmer which is one of the barriers also for some people to adopt serverless is it's one thing to say here's this paradigm and here's this way you could do it it's another thing to have a bunch of employees that already work a different way and kind of get them 
to to like see a new workflow. Oh, for sure. Like adopting that in a company would be difficult, especially like a company as big as like, you know, how like Microsoft deploys things internally or whatever. I mean, even if you got to even like to hundreds of employees, I think it starts to be a bit of a, like inertia has its own way of keeping things in, in place. I mean, it's definitely challenging. Uh, it was, I mean, even at IO Pipe, um, you know, we've had, you know, uh, various people ask, well, why was this service built that way or built that way? Or, you know, why wasn't this thing, why wasn't that part of the stack built serverless? It's like, well, because, you know, somebody joined and it was their first project and we didn't want to hold them up by making them, you know, like learn how to architect distributed applications, right? Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've progressed there and I don't think we have any app, like we've done a lot better um, and we've learned a lot of lessons, right? Um, and how to build the serverless applications, but it's been a learning process. And honestly, um, you know, it's a lot, it is definitely easier on a small team to learn those lessons than it is on a big team um, or a very large you know, organization. So I, def I definitely get the idea that like it's a process and, you know, the future is not evenly distributed. Um, you know, I just like to, you know, I like I like to live in my cave and I, I have a it's like a blanket. It's <laughs> I get to live under my blanket, you know. I get to be ignorant of you know the containerized masses out, outside of it. But this brings up an abstract concept we could discuss a bit, and it's sort of a recurring theme in some of the conversations that Jess and I've been having with our people, which is from a technology perspective, you're basically committing to endless learning. Like if you really want to be part of what's going on. Yeah, you can find a niche and you can do that task, but this, this game just changes constantly. And, and you know, the finding, finding not, not only, uh, you know, a love of learning, but just like embracing the fact that you're never going to know. And then like, there's always a new thing, always, always, always a new thing to learn. That is definitely frustrating. I mean, I've been in this industry for long enough. I mean, what, 17, 18 years, I don't even know. And yes, like it, it is constant learning. And some of the, some of the, like the most learning I've done, like recently has been, you know, at IO Pipe because, you know, we're building like these, you know, we decided to do React and GraphQL and like all these things. It's like, well, did we really have to use GraphQL? Can we, like, I understand why, but also like if we just used REST, like, like it's a very well-known pattern and like we, like nobody has to spend time learning it, right? This um, is the point though, right? This is the trade-off. And you just you just gave this example of someone came and they didn't know how to do this like yeah. this system or whatever. Like you still have to get work done and you have to make exactly. decisions, you know, balancing the fact that this might not be the perfect way to do this in some you know indeterminate future state, but like let's get it done today so we can kind of move on to the next version. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I have to make those trade-offs a, a lot. Um, you know, I, you know, like, we, we try to be serverless first. Like, hey, can we build this quickly with serverless? Because sometimes we find that if we build a serverless application, by the nature of it being serverless and leveraging other people's work, we have to build less. But sometimes it's harder. It's a lot harder. And in those cases, like, there's no benefit, right? Like, you're, you're, you're just spinning your wheels trying to, like, you know, find, you know, a quirky solution. This is a super interesting topic. What, like, what's that bright line? Like, how do you know when you look at a project, 
that this should be this should be serverless or it shouldn't be and and what's the thing that anchors um where, where you're deciding okay like it shouldn't be serverless um i i think the the biggest thing in for serverless apps in particular is how you manage state um and where you're storing it and like so recently you know this was this was just like a fun project I, I did literally just for my own, like literally a project I did for fun, right? And th this will give you an idea of what I consider fun. Um, for fun, with Eric. I wanted to build a fully, uh, a fully serverless email service. So like, you know, a, you know, a, you know, like do all of the IMAP and like, and POP3 and SMTP and everything completely serverlessly. And then wow. It was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, so Amazon actually took care of one really easy, like one part of it, like really well, which is um, having um, Amazon simple email service create a mail map um, directory structure under S3 is pretty much just checking the boxes. Like you can just say, put it in this S3 folder. And as long as you like put the folder specification, like in a way that looks like mail map, it just works. Um, the problem is you can't get those files off of S3 or write those files in S3 in like a really effective way, especially serverlessly. Um, you know, mail map is obviously not, or, or mail director, mail, mail dir is not designed for running off of S3, right? Um, you know, you, there's like no IMAPDs that, first of all, you can't handle raw sockets, so you can't just do IMAPD. You have to, you could build an HTTP API if you wanted to, but you can't do, you know, an, an IMAP service serverlessly. It's just impossible. There's no raw socket service for serverless apps. Um, so I was like, okay, what if we used Fargate and we did like a, um, you know, an INAD style where, you know, a request comes in and it spawns like a full container with an IMAP day <laughs> to, to handle that individual request. And like, you start going down some really nasty rabbit holes and then you're like, well, Fargate doesn't have, can't do fuse file systems. So it can't talk to, it can't do an S3 file system. Um, so what if you use EFS? Well, Lambda doesn't do EFS and Fargate doesn't do EFS. So it was just like this whole rabbit hole. I was like, there's literally, I can create the mail, the mail dirts on S3 and there's no way to read them. <laughs> like, have you, heard the good word, have you heard the good word about Kubernetes? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So the, but the, but this is the point though, right? Was that this was literally because I wanted, well, the underlying project was how do I forward emails for vanity domains that I purchased and want to give like access to my friends to like forwarding addresses or even maybe like IMAP inboxes. And I don't want to pay $5 a user for, you know, kind of thing, right? Which like, if I was going to do $5 a user, I could just go pay, you know, Google. But I wanted so to like say, hey, to make, make your own, like, own Gmail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not easy. <laughs> But like, I'm the kind of person that is like, oh, building that isn't that hard. And like, it wasn't that hard. Like, when I was building these things on servers, 
and it was okay to just have one server that ran this thing, like running like your own, you know, MTA and like, you know, IMAP service and everything on a single machine was not that hard. Um, like I, I spent 10, over 10 years just doing that. Um, I mean, not just doing that, but like that was a big part of like, this, you know, like SRE work that I did was like managing, you know, uh, mail servers, but trying to port that kind of architecture to a fully distributed pattern that runs, you know, without any servers actually like running and getting billed for and only literally paying for the email that comes in and the emails that I send and for nothing else. Turns out that was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's easy if it doesn't have to work. All right. <laughs> So what do you think, Jess? I think that that is actually, sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a bit nerd sniped by it, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, it, it reminds me of, like, when I tried to do all that crazy shit in containers, you know, and then hit all these weird walls. So I, I of course, love anything that's strange. So... And that's a big reason as why I chose to do containers. So like, if this was like a service I was building for IO Pipe, that was like, this is a product I'm building, I would have just not said, no, I'm going to have to do this in, you know, serverless. You know, this is definitely, you know, a, 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 a Jesse Frizzell's kind of like, how can I use containers where maybe containers aren't the right solution kind of thing? And I was like, I'm going to use serverless, even if it's the wrong solution. Like, I'm going to make this work. Um, that's when it, it's it, fun. That's when it's, it's fun. fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's it's if you could, not if you should. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what's I, go ahead? Oh well, um, I, I do I do plan I'll probably try and solve that by the end of the year. Um, there there are things I cannot talk about on the call that I know are going to happen that are going to make this easier for me. So like. I'm, I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm waiting for like the clouds to offer all of the services that I need for this application to run. <laughs> that's dope, actually. If there's like new services coming out that help with this, like that's crazy. Well, it also it kind of ties back into this theme where the the things that are that are hard become easy as as people try to do them, right? And and like you know. I think this, the trend with cloud, and then the trend with containers, and then the trend with serverless. Hello? Like, I can hear you. Anyway, I, I was just saying, as you get to the point where you, you run into these walls, if enough people run into them, then we all kind of solve them together, or the provider solve them, and then like the next problem becomes hard again. Yeah, yeah and I think that's one of the, the, that is one of my frustrations with serverless, is like, here's a, an example of, I wanted to solve this problem, and like with Docker, I could have contributed to Docker or I could have contributed to Kubernetes or one of these other, you know, things. And with like, you know, serverless, I, I definitely had, you know, like when I hit a brick wall with like Fargate or Lambda or one of these services, I did get stuck at the point where like, okay, well, I just have to wait until the provider offers me the thing that I need. So that, like, does that make uh, you... I don't have any audio. Can you hear me or no? I think your audio broke. I, I can, my, my mic seems to work. Can you hear me, Jess? Yeah, I can hear you. So 
I think Erica's speakers will broke. Technical difficulty. Okay, um, I'm back. My my AirPods stopped working. Oh, uh, there we go. Computer. Technology is hard. So somebody tried calling me on my on my phone, and then everything just went to hell. <laughs> <laughs> it was the mixed signals. Yeah. You so think is there that. is there another kind of parting wisdom, or what? What's kind of a thing to to bring us to uh, end of an episode? I feel like we had a nice nice reminiscing about the past and then a little bit about the future and and what's kind of the what's a fine point of wisdom to put on it i don't know um i mean i'm really just excited for a lot of the things to come like i mean i i want I, I mean, serverless is going to pick up adoption and it's going to get more users and there are going to be more apps using it and you know, people will keep building for Kubernetes, but I'm also like excited for the, the thing that comes after serverless. After serverless. Um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. So it, it'll, it, I think it'll come sooner than we expect. Like, I think it'll be built on top of serverless. It's, you know, just like we're building, like we had Docker and then we had Kubernetes. Um, you know, they're not exactly unrelated. And nor is Lambda, right? Lambda is also containers. So, oh, we, now we lost Andrew. Yeah, he does this. He, he drops in and out <laughs> when his audio gets all weird. I don't know why he does that. Computers are hard. Yeah. So, so what, one, one thing that was, we just touched on it a little bit, but like we, we did a bunch of things in open source, all of us, and then and now we're seeing this evolution with the serverless thing. You, you already made this comment. It's like you have to wait for that. Like, doesn't that seem sort of disempowering? On one hand, it's empowering to be able to do self-service productivity for the for the developer, but on the other hand, you kind of lose some of the you know optionality that you get when you when you have the code and you can kind of participate in that as a community. I mean, yes, but also we have the same problem with CPUs, don't we? Like, we're also I mean, like other than like Risk Five. Um, you know, we don't exactly have like open source CPUs that we're all running. Like we're, you know, we're running Intel architectures and ARM architectures for the most part. And, you know, I mean, I, I highlighted bugs where, I mean, it wasn't really me highlighting the bugs. Other people discovered bugs in x86. Um, I tried to raise some awareness of it and like, like the, the Spectre and Meltdown attacks, like we had canaries for those, you know, two, three years before they happened. And, you know, I was like, hey, everybody, we should, you know, like, this looks really bad. Can we fix this? And nobody wanted to fix it, right? And nobody was empowered to fix it because, like, people like myself who cared, it was closed source. I couldn't modify it. And, I mean, there's a whole Richard Stallman, God, I, he's a person. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's that, that idea, which is, like, everything should be open source. And, like, you know, it's a wonderful, idealistic, like, mentality to have, maybe, that, like, we should have all the things open source. You know, but the fact is that all the things aren't open source. And when they're not, we've traditionally have dealt with it. Like, when our CPUs are not open source, we have dealt with it. So, it may be worse, technically, but also it's not been a problem, you know, for our CPU architectures. Yeah, the, I would add even the, the flip side of that is that 
open source projects, um, particularly the ones that were funded to, to whatever degree, they're all struggling on the other side of that equation with their own you know, existence and, and viability as businesses trying to try and figure out how to, how to participate in the commercial side of it. it that's, that's interesting too, because like my issue with Kubernetes, one of the reasons I didn't get involved in Kubernetes was because like, it wasn't that it was yet another ride um, of, you know, the open source, like architecture train and reinventing the wheel. Like it wasn't the technology, it was the politics of it and the foundations and like, you know, I, I know, like, Jess, you went through, like, the Docker, you know, stuff and, you know, some of the um, Linux Foundation stuff. But, like, I had also gone through the OpenStack Foundation work, too. And I was like, two times was enough. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine another round. Like, I mean, I, I, like, saw it the first round with just Linux Foundation and Linux. And then, like, the whole cloud native computing. But, like, I just, like, yeah. It's, like, there were warning signs, too, like, I feel like that it was the same thing, yeah. And this is one of the things that really frustrated me at Docker, actually, was there was a lot of, um, there are a lot of people in, internally uh, early on who are like, we don't want to, like, you know, OpenStack was bad. OpenStack did these things poorly. But nobody ever wanted to listen to why, like, to learn from those mistakes, right? Because, like, I always try to be the voice in the room. was like, hey, listen, like OpenStack did this, and I'm not saying it was right. I'm saying they did this because we can learn from this. And, you know, everybody was just so, well, OpenStack did this. It was wrong. Like, there were things they did right, and there were things they did wrong, and that, that's how you learn. Um, I felt there was sometimes a culture of OpenStack just sucks, so we're just going to do nothing that they did, <laughs> which is also not the right solution, in my opinion. <laughs> totally. Totally. All right, then. <laughs> Don't do it or do do it. There is no try. <laughs> learn from the mistakes of others and don't discard their experiences. Yes. There's, the, there's the learning again, except for now, you're going to do it vicariously. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no easy answer, right? And, and I think we both, we both have, all three of us have opinions about foundations and open source and how to do this uh, the right way, but uh, like no one's really, really done it all right. And and I I would wager if we were the ones to architect it, we'd probably get some things wrong as well. Oh yeah, that's I mean that's kind of why I just don't want to get engaged because I'm just so I'm very jaded by the whole foundation open you know massive open source project thing. But we do new things wrong. Yes. <laughs> So with that, unless someone has a, a thing that they want to throw into it, that feels like a good 45-minute uh, episode. I'm good with that. Yeah, sounds good. Also, thanks for, thanks for coming on our podcast. Absolutely. Of course. By the way, I wasn't sure, were these video recorded too? Yeah, yeah we do both. Okay. Cool. So, so people will see the... Uh, the racks of, of gear in the background. And, uh, there's like racks of gear. There's only like there's, like there's like random bits of gear and luggage. Boxes. There, there is. So there's uh, this actually my 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 tape back up. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic.